What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 123 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders, find out how they have learned to lead with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Well, today is going to be special. Today, I get to speak with a gentleman you may not know. He and his company, Building Champions, are making a massive Difference. He has a brand new book out called The Seven Perspectives of Effective Leaders. And it is as good a stuff as I've gone through in a long, long time. He's an executive coach. He's an author. He's a host. He is a proven speaker. But even more than that, he coaches some of the greatest CEOs in America. You may not know his name. But I promise you, you know all the people he's worked with. And after we get off this call today, you're going to be better like they're better for their time with Daniel Harkavy. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're doing. But I want you to pull up a chair and I want you to listen in on these perspectives of effective leaders and this story that made Daniel Harkavy who he is today, because I'm telling you, you're going to be better for it. So pull up a chair and listen in to my conversation with Daniel Harkavy. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. Mike, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, prior to the books, prior to your networks and all that you do, tell me about Daniel growing up. Who'd you think you were going to be when you would end up where you are in life now? That is a um, really timely question. It's uh, honestly one of those goosebump questions, Mike, because this morning, uh, as I was getting ready for my day, um, for some reason, I started thinking about a few of my life verses, and I'm not kidding you, Mike. And one of my life verses is Psalm 9012, so teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. But as I was thinking about my day and getting ready, it was already after I had my quiet time with my wife, um, Philippians 4.13 just started to impress upon me, you know, uh, you know, he can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That was one. And then to him who is more, uh, to him who is able to do more than we could measure, immeasurably ask or imagine, right? And and both of those, I was thinking about those this morning from my own life because I was thinking, I need to truly acknowledge that where I'm at is not, it is not because of my own works. It's not because of like who I am alone or what I've done on my own. So I share that with you. I grew up in Southern California, uh, born in 1964. I'm 56. And uh, so, so I grew up, you know, 60s, 70s, graduated high school in 80. Uh, I have beautiful Jewish parents, Jewish grandparents, Jewish by, um, you know, bloodline, and, uh, but, but not devout in faith. So, you know, I've done a lot of my own study on Judaism over the years, and you know, there's different ways for us to be Jewish, and that's a great conversation in itself. But for me, um, faith was not a part of my growing up. But I share that I was Jewish because in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, I experienced anti-Semitism where I lived. So my nickname was BNJ, Big Nose Jew. And that was uh, from junior high school all the way through high school. I was one of the smallest kids. I have, uh, like I said, beautiful parents, but mom was a functioning alcoholic. Dad was an only child, very uh, successful newspaper publishing uh, kind of career for him. 
I would say we were middle of the road, uh, in, you know, in the economic and societal realm. But it wasn't safe because I was the oldest of three kids. Uh, you know, uh, there was some bullying uh, that took place. Uh, that was, you know, late 60s, all the way through early 70s and, and beyond, set the trajectory for my young life. Drugs, drinking, drumming, surfing, partying, girls. Um, every human needs to belong. If you don't have a lot of kids that you're going to connect with because you're not an athlete, mm -hmm. you become a skateboarder, surfer, that kind of deal, drummer in a rock band, you need to belong. So you actually turn out to be who will accept you. And, and I, uh, I actually did a lot of damage, Mike, a lot of damage. The, uh, the family I was surrounded with, aunts and uncles and cousins, were all quite wealthy. And they all lived in the valley in Southern California. So everywhere from like Westwood, um, Woodland Hills, Agura, that area. And they were quite well-to-do, Beverly Hills. And I always saw that. And I thought, you know what? That's what I want. I want to be really wealthy. So I put a whole bunch of energy into that young. Even though I was a surfer, drummer, partier, rock and roll kind of kid, I always worked. And I worked really hard. I didn't work hard at school. Uh I went to community college for about a year and a half. I didn't graduate. I applied for the biggest party school in Southern California at the time. They turned me down. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the age, what, 17, 18, I was in sales and office supplies, printing and office furniture. I was in construction. I was a waiter. I was doing all sorts of things, but I was also going to Hawaii every winter and surfing. And, uh, and at 20, I got into mortgage banking because somebody saw me. And uh, it was the founder of this company, and he saw what I, uh, what who I was and what I could do, and he gave me an opportunity. So I started making a lot of money at age 20, 21. I had this crisis of faith at 22 after a skiing accident. A girlfriend who loved Christ, and she also loved me, so she got ripped down the middle because I wasn't. No Christian girl should have been hanging out with me. I, I do damage, and. Uh, so anyways, we broke up, we're together, broke up together. We broke up at about 21, uh, 22. I've got a great career going. I live in my own home. I'm driving a fancy German car and a few others. And I'm at really at the top of my game as a partier, money-making young guy. Skiing accident. Uh, and in that skiing accident, uh, spent a whole bunch of time on my back. And because of a whole bunch of circumstances around me, I started to really get interested in Judaism because I wanted to answer the question that everybody had been asking me for years. Do you know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And I'd say, hey, leave me alone. You're a Jesus freak. You know, I'm chosen, but I had no idea what that meant. And uh, so I decided to figure it out. So there's a long answer. That's uh, up to 22. At 22, I figure it out. I've met with pastors and Holocaust survivors, and some of my friends have changed their ways. And uh, and I changed my ways in April of 1987, mm. changed my life, decided I was going to become a follower of the Messiah, Yeshua, and uh, stayed in mortgage banking, career continued to grow. And, you know, that's much more than your question of who was I when I was a young kid. But there you go. At what point in that, and I love the part where you talked about just the crisis of belief, and I think everybody at some point in their life has those defining moments what about you as a leader changed? How, how did your faith shift how you saw who Daniel was and the purpose you were put here for? It's a really good question. So I didn't see myself as a leader until I was given the chance to manage a branch for this company. And that was at the age 23, wow. just months after my uh, decision to become a follower. So just months after they, um, they gave me the opportunity to manage the, the branch at the time, I, out of 105 of the producers, I was in the top three and the majority of the other folks were probably 20 years, my senior at least. And so they gave this young, uneducated, hard, hard, hard worker, a chance to to build something. At the time, my branch was two employees. One of them quit immediately. And basically, um, I, I don't know if I ever really thought about how my faith impacted, how my leadership changed, but I definitely think 
I definitely think it impacted how my leadership was formed. Mm, mm, Early on, I had an aunt who told me, she called me aside. I was probably 14 years old. And I remember this. She just passed uh, in in this past year. Um, And I remember my aunt Eileen uh, saying to me, Danny at the time, not Daniel, the mature version. Danny, um, you have a lot of influence. You have the ability to to change people and to get them to follow you. And she said, I hope you figure out how to do that for good. Because if you don't, I'm really worried about you and who you're going to become. And I remember that. So, you know, I was given the formal opportunity to lead after I'd already come to Christ. So I would say that I don't know how much he changed how I led. I think he built how I lead. That's good. That is good. You know, and now, gosh, you work with some of the most famous CEOs in the world. People, everybody knows their name. Everybody knows their company. What, as you, you know, here's the, here's this young driving kid with a lot of talent that somebody sees you begin to form who you are as you are now in your world, you step into their world. What are things all leaders have in common? What are things as you, from the vantage point of a coach, you're coaching so many of these guys, what are things you find as common in the lives of, of leaders from the automotive industry to the sports industry to the restaurant industry? What are, what are some common things that you see in those leaders? The good ones? Absolutely. We'll take good and bad. How about that? Yeah, uh, the good ones are easy, and that's probably easier for me because I've been so fortunate. Uh, you know, when I started building champions 25 years ago, uh, all of my my clients weren't at the executive level. That that happened over time, and that was all in mortgage banking, the business that I grew up in. But I always knew that I was going to expand, and then be, put some intention behind that. So today get rid of that. I apologize. Oh, you're fine. So, so today, you know, the clients that I get to work with, uh, all industries, they're all just really good men and women. Mm. So what they have in common is they, um, they believe that the humans around them are around them because they possess gifts. Um, they, they see the goodness in them and they truly believe that their job as leaders is to bring out the best and the smartest. So, so that's such a big question, Mike, because I can like what these people have in common, they believe that they in their role are in their role by design. Mm. They're right where they need to be. They're not questioning that. So it's not an identity issue where they're afraid of losing the role or they don't really care if other people think they should or shouldn't have the role. They know they're there because they're supposed to be there. They know what their gifts are and what their primary responsibility is. It's not to know it all. Like they're not the, they don't need to be the smartest one in the room. I didn't learn that until I was 46. Wow. You ask a question that is probably one of the greatest benefits of getting to do what I've get to do. I get to journey with leaders who are wildly successful. Like I, I, that's why I told you about this little life verse conversation this morning. I can't believe I get to work with these people. Mm. You know, they've got all these letters behind their names and their, their CVs are so impressive. And mine is like, yeah, he went to Royal Oak high school and he (laughs) barely made it through and he partied his way through junior college for a year and a half. And, uh, Oh yeah. Now he coaches uh, these leaders. Like what the heck? Right. Yeah. God, thank you. Um, So they see people as who they are and who they can become. They don't need to be the smartest person in the room. They need to surround themselves with the smartest people in the room. And then they need to have a clear and compelling vision and uh, the uh, buy-in from those around them that they can actually architect a better tomorrow. They can actually author an improvement in the story and they believe it. And they know that the only way it's going to happen is if they bring out the best in the people around them. And then they're humble enough to ask for help. That's good. You know, they don't need to be the smart. Yeah. It's so, yeah, there's this confidence that comes from knowing you are the man, you are the woman, you're right where you're supposed to be. And, uh, and that it's okay for you not to know it all, but boy, oh boy, you work diligently 
to bring out the best in people and to build strategic bets and and process that will enable an organization to move and improve to become the business or organization that you see it becoming in the future. They all they all they all share that. All yeah. of them. So, so here's a question. I'd love to dig in on this. I was with a group of great leaders this morning, some pretty high level guys. And this question came up. So we were talking about servant leader. We're talking about leading. So you are leading face to face with your people, but yet your role is still you're you're the guy or you're the woman. How do you how do you coach somebody to keep that humility? while still remaining in charge where people are looking at you for answers. People are looking at you for direction. And, and if we acquiesce and we don't give them that direction, we forfeit our chance to lead, but yet we want to do it with humility. How do you coach that? How do you coach a leader with that? Well, the, the good news is, like I said, the majority of my clients understand that, but those that have some deficit there or some opportunity there, uh, what we'll do is we will start with making sure that they do have a clear and compelling vision that causes them to want to risk, to want to stretch and to want to sacrifice. And if they do, if we can get them to that point, well, then you you come to this place to where you realize that there's no chance that you can do it on your own. That's good. You need other people. And not only do you need the other competence, the other technical skills, the other um, expertise, you actually need the hearts of those people. So they have to buy into that vision, which means you have to include them in the building of it. Yep. And when we all had a hand in it, but it was really birthed in you as the leader, but we had a hand in forming it, then we get to figure out how to move from where we're at to where we're going. So you, you, um, you have leaders that understand the confidence piece is I am where I I'm supposed to be. I'm confident that that vision is a good one. I'm confident that I've surrounded myself with the best and the brightest, and I'm working on always upgrading that. And then I'm humble enough to know that where we're headed requires the best in all of them. And they're the ones they're thinking on the how we do it is probably as good, if not better than my own most of the time. Mm. And that's the beauty of a great leader. Yep. Like you don't need to, you know, I, I've coached in uh, petroleum, right? So Shell and Exxon Mobil, they come together, they create a, a joint venture, this global firm out of the UK. And I started working with them like 15 years ago, Infinium Petroleum. And their, their CEO, uh, Dominique Fournier from France, was a great client. He's since retired. The guy is an adjunct professor and loving the, the, the next chapter of life. He's a beautiful human. But I, I remember... Um, really just watching him and uh, understand watching and learning from him mm. that he needed the smartest chemists, the smartest engineers, the smartest scientists around to solve the problems. And he flat out would just say, that's not me. That's not my job. I'm, I'm a CEO. <laughs> like, you, we're going to do this so that we create cleaner. We create better for the environment and for humanity. That's what we're doing. Now you figure it out because mm. I can't do it. That's good. So he was just so comfortable in that, right? That's so, so good. That is so good. You know, I heard I heard you make this statement. Um, basically, the baseline of every leader has to be character and integrity. That almost has to be assumed that they have character and integrity. Why are those two really the baseline that every leader's got to build off of? Well, I... Uh, People will mock me for how often I say this. Self-leadership always precedes team leadership. Team leadership always precedes organizational leadership. You're always working on all three. Self-leadership always precedes. Self-leadership's the first. Self-leadership is what will enable you to soar, or self-leadership is what will enable you to fall. It's how you lead yourself. Who do you believe you are? Identity. Do you really, at the core of who you are, understand who you are? the gifts, as well as the vulnerabilities, mm. then that influences your thinking. Your thinking influences your beliefs. It's a beautiful circle. And then it impacts your emotions and how you feel. So we as leaders, we need to be aware of the fact that we feel a certain way 
to people mm. and how we feel impacts influence. I had a, a fun conversation on this topic of character and integrity with Horst Schultze, and uh, he would be a fun one for you to interview. He was oh, one of the founders man. of uh, Ritz-Carlton Hotels. He's in my most recent book, The Seven Perspectives. In that book, my premise is a leader's effectiveness is determined by just two things, only two. That's it. Decision-making and influence. Mm. That's all. You want to take the complex, crazy, multidimensional stew of leadership. You can read 30, 40, 50,000 books on any of the specific domains or areas of expertise, but the seven perspectives of effective leaders is this framework that helps you to make better decisions and have more influence. That's right. So Horst Schultz, he's in the book and he's talking about different decisions he made around each of the perspectives when he was the COO of Fritz Carlton Hotels. And if any of you have heard Horst, you know, he's got that strong German accent. And I, I always challenge leaders. Last six, seven years, I've been challenging leaders. Hey, a leader's effectiveness is determined by just two things, decisions and influence. Am I right or am I wrong? Tell me. Mm. And Horst is like, ah, I don't think so. And he's the only one. <laughs> I've had other people question it, but he's like, I don't think so. And I'm like, uh-oh. Oh, and it was like this, you know, it was <laughs> a video great. interview. I'm like, oh, shoot, really? <laughs> and I no, I don't think so. And I'm leaning in. He says, integrity. They must have integrity. And I said, Horsty, that's required in order for you to be a good leader. That's right. I asked what's required to be an effective leader. You can't be an effective leader if you're not a good leader. Like integrity, if you don't have integrity, get off the field. Mm. Like you don't, you don't deserve to be on the field. You have to have integrity. If you don't, you might create goodness for a little while, but at some point, it's all going to fall apart because you're going to crack. That's right. And your actions aren't going to align with your words. And now influence suffers. And uh, you'll be leading yourself or you'll be leading some bad folks and doing some bad things, getting bad results. Did he, did he agree after y'all's yeah. conversation? Oh, yeah. Did he? Yeah, he, did. <laughs> he did. And it was my, it was my interview. So if he wouldn't have, I would have just ended <laughs> it. But, <right>. Yeah. <laughs> the, the beauty of the, the beauty of the mute button, the beauty of the mic. It's a great thing. Yeah. Isn't it? It's a great but thing. I don't understand your German accent. What'd you say? Oh, <laughs> That's why pastors don't ask questions on Sundays. It's it, yeah. you, you get the opportunity to say what you want to say, then okay, drop mic. We're done. There you go. So how, I love, and I want to get into the seven perspectives because I think whether you're leading a business, a nonprofit, a school, there's a lot of superintendents and principals listening, or an athletic department or team. It really these are universal perspectives. And that's what I love. In fact, I read an article in Outreach Magazine where you related all of these realities to the church, which I thought was really good. So I, I want to start with reality number one, that perspective number one, current reality. Why does every leader have to be grounded in current reality to have the right perspective and effectively lead? It's your starting point on your organizational GPS. So the last book I wrote with Michael Hyatt, Living Forward, we use the analogy of the GPS for your life. I'm using that for business as well. If you, if you imagine that you as a leader are taking your organization on a journey, right? And you want to take them to a better tomorrow, which is perspective two. We'll get into that in the moments ahead. If you're not connected to current reality, if you really don't know what your starting point is, well, everything else is going to fall apart. You get this one wrong, everything else falls apart. So current reality has to do with really knowing what it's like to do the work of your organization. You understand the systems, the processes, the functions. You understand the glitches as well as the great um, advantages. You understand the legislative pressures, the economic pressures in today's time, the world health pressures. You understand all of that. Mike, if you don't, you become that leader that I think the term was probably coined in the 70s. You're the ivory yeah. tower leader, right? And what, what's meant by that is, oh, they sit up in their ivory tower, they make all the big decisions, but they have no clue as to what it's like to do the work. Mm -hmm. So their decisions, not as good as they could be. Their influence, 
nowhere near as what it could be because everyone's down on the floor doing the work. And they're like, the guy's an idiot. She doesn't know what she's doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. And it's, they're making our job a lot harder. Yeah. So you have to understand what got you to where you are, where you're at today. And current reality includes where you're headed over the next 180 to even 365 days. It's now. Is there a question as you're coaching a leader, you know, no matter the size of the organization, and one of the things I love that you do is you coach from startups, some startup ventures and, and startup groups to massive companies that we all know. Is there a question that you ask that can get a leader's um, response correct in this? Because I think everybody would go, oh, of course I know the current reality, but they may not. Is there a certain trigger question that you ask that gets them to that a little quicker? Yeah, I just basically say, show me what you look at every month. So I want to see what you look at every month that gives me the vitals of your business. I don't want to really see the lagging indicators, lagging lagging indicators are a report card for how you did a quarter ago. Mm-hmm. I want to see leading indicators and lagging indicators. Leading indicators are where there's a lot of gaps. Mm-hmm. People don't fully understand today where the business is heading if they don't have optics into the vitals that will tell you what's taking place and will impact the business, you know, 30 days from now, 60 days from now, a year from now. Yep. And it's complicated. The organization is trying to hide current reality from you because it's not always good. So it requires discipline. Now there's two words that, that I want everybody to hear and they connect back to what do great leaders have in common. And they're a theme throughout the book, intentional curiosity. That's right. Great leaders have intentional curiosity. They are thinking about their thinking. They're wondering about what they don't know, because like we said, they're not the smartest person in the room. They don't know everything, right? right? So they, they got a lot to learn. And when it comes to current reality, they're asking the right questions so they can best understand what assets, resources, competencies, vulnerabilities they have today, because leaders are not just thinking about managing the business today, they're leading an organization to tomorrow. So they need to take inventory without that. Your starting point on your GPS is broken, right? So there you go. Which, which leads to that second perspective of vision. And I know you talked about, you love Henry cloud's definition of making the invisible visible. So so what does a, what does a great leader do with vision? Cause that's, I mean, that is a hot word but not everybody knows what that word really means. Break it down from your perspective. Yeah. So I was on a podcast earlier today and uh, the the host said, uh, you know, give us your definite vision because every leader has a different definition of vision. Right. And I said, Oh boy. I said, if you could just be a fly on the wall and all of the executive team and boardroom meetings I've had around vision <laughs> uh, with teams and leaders over the last 25 years, it's always fun. So So vision, you know, vision is not something that you, you have, or you create, it's actually a part of who you are. Mm -hmm. And, and one of my partners at building champions, Jerry Baker, he used to be the CEO and chairman of uh, first Tennessee bank and first horizon home loan sold to MetLife and, and and Jerry's now coach emeritus. He's in his late seventies, but I started working with him when he was in his fifties, still a CEO and chairman. And Jerry over the years adopted all of our frameworks and tools. And, and a lot of them just, we packaged better what he already knew and had been doing. And he became one of our most effective CEO mentors and a dear friend. And, And I remember Jerry, we were doing this event for all of our clients and Jerry said, you know, people, vision isn't something that you do. Vision is who you are. And he said, leaders, you need to own this. It's like not a check the box. It's like who you are. And if you don't wake up believing and feeling and having a little bit of anxious nervousness and excitement about tomorrow, well, then understand you're actually not leading. Or if you're doing so, you're not doing it well. So every vision, okay, answers three questions. And I call it 3B vision. Our people want to know what do we belong to? All humans want to belong. 
They want to know, who are we going to become? If I trade the majority of my waking hours to hitch to this wagon, who are we going to become? Because people don't come to work with the hope of like all day long toiling week after week after week. So they accomplish a mediocre outcome working for a, an organization that has a mediocre brand or mediocre reputation. They get to do a mediocre job and they get mediocre pay. People aren't, they're, they're, we're not wired that way. Everyone wants to be connected to something to where tomorrow we can become more. Mm. And in the organization, I can become more. I have opportunity and I can participate and invest and share so that we become more. So vision, what do we belong to? Convictions and purpose answer that. Who are we going to become? Well, we paint a picture area by area about who we as leaders believe and see the organization can become later on. Third B, what are we going to build? We may not build it in my lifetime. If you look at my vision for building champions, I see us having boots on the ground in 10 countries, coaching 10,000 leaders at one time. When I first started sharing that with my little boutique coaching company, people thought I was a nut job. They're like, oh, boots on the ground, 10 countries. We didn't coach anybody other than this one petroleum firm in the UK. When COVID hit, I was leading a board meeting with CEOs from around the world sitting in a boardroom in Germany. Mm. A month earlier with a group on a journey through Singapore. If you don't have the vision, you don't engage right. the thinking and then the energy and the strategic bets to make that vision become a reality. Now, I may never live to see the organization having boots on the ground in 10 countries. But today, I've been so blessed. Some of my books are, you know, 19 different languages. I was in Korea a couple of years ago. I walk into the bookstore and I see Living Forward, of course, with my interpreter, right on the front window. I'm like, what the heck? Look at that. Well, I'll tell you what, that content's paving the way. That's the John the Baptist for my coaches. That's exactly it's right. Paving the way. So you got to have the vision. You got to have that vision. What do, what do we belong to? Convictions. We'll fight for them. Our purpose, bigger than return on, on investment, bigger than a dollar. It's not a dollar. It's a purpose that serves humanity or business, community. Who are we going to become? It's worth sacrificing for. I like this journey. I want to go where you want to go. And then what are we going to build? Whew, that's going to be God's size. But let's go for it and take some risks. Are, Once are you there, have that magnetic. Yep. This yeah, pull you, on you. Go ahead. That's right. No, no, no. I don't mean to interrupt. Yeah. I, I know sometimes leaders hit those, they hit those burnout seasons. They hit those seasons where they go, boy, the current reality has sapped my dreams. What do you tell a, what do you tell somebody if you sit down with a coach client and they're honest and they go, honestly, Daniel, I don't even know what my vision is anymore. What would you tell them? Well, you can ask a, an even more, more, more direct to me as a CEO and a founder and said, Hey, Daniel, when you've had your near deaths mm. owning and running your own company for 25 years, what'd you do? That's good. What'd you do with vision? I mean, I can tell you firsthand first near death, near death, 2001. Second near death, 2007, 2008. Third near death, yeah, maybe near, I don't know, debilitation, not sure. Would have been uh, 2019 and 2020. Mm. Gnarly times where I'm sitting there going, do I have the energy? Do I have the team? Do I have the yep. ability? Can I lead out of this? Yep. Do I want to? I'm tired. You know, it's hard. And the role of vision especially if I've made mistakes and now I'm questioning whether my team respects me or not, which mm -hmm. happened to me uh, a couple times because yep. in 2001, I made these huge strategic bets that were just not informed. And, and I can talk about that at another time, but not informed, huge strategic bets, almost tanked the company, strategic bets. And I felt like a buffoon. Mm. And I came in and I told the team, I made a major mistake and I feel like a buffoon and I screwed up and I need help. And, and I'm questioning everything. And then over some time, reviewing my vision, reviewing my vision, reviewing my vision, I came to the point where I said, yeah, I'm questioning everything and I'm a human and I screwed up. But that vision is still 
the only thing that I want to pursue. Wow. It's still the only thing. I see my gifts. I see the opportunity. I see the need. Get off your little whiny butt and get out there and go again. And uh, and sometimes you need people around you to say, get off your little whiny butt and go again, because the vision's worth sacrificing for. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. And I appreciate your vulnerability on that because I think it's so easy as a leader on the outside to look at you and go, wow, he has everybody's answers. So I'm sure this all comes, it's like hearing Patrick Lencioni talk and talk about how he hates conflict. He doesn't like dealing with conflict, but he tells everybody else, you got to be able to deal with conflict <laughs> to build trust. But it's the reality that just because you are leading leaders doesn't mean that you don't have to work through all these two. And so that is really, yeah, we all have our near-death experiences. That is for sure. And uh, we've lived to tell about it and kept walking. It's half the battle. And I love it. And your your uh, chapter and perspectives, and we won't hit all these because I don't want to give away the whole book, but strategic bets. I have never heard anybody else capture that phrase, but yet you never move on without without some things going your way and you're betting on it. Unpack that comment, strategic bets, and what that perspective means to you. So first off, um, I need to give credit to uh, uh, one of your fellow neighbors, Tim Tosopoulos, who's the uh, COO and president of, of Chick-fil-A. Yep. Longtime friend, client of mine years and years ago. And, and I first heard Tim use the term strategic bets. Tim's in the book. The book's got 20 plus amazing leaders in it who, who talk about all the different perspectives, but we're talking perspective three. When I heard Tim talk about strategy in the context of bets, um, it piqued my interest mm. because if you do research on strategy and execution, what you learn is that most organizations fail to execute on their strategies. 75% is the most commonly quoted number of all strategies fail. That's a problem. Like that's a big problem because these strategies cost a lot of money. So perspective three fills what I call the opportunity gap. When you're grounded in current reality, okay, you understand the mechanics of the business, the assets, the resources, the competencies, the headwinds, the tailwinds, everything inside, everything outside. You're not the ivory tower leader. You've got both feet firmly planted in current reality. Now you're going to make really good management decisions and your team consciously and subconsciously will follow you because you know the business. Mm. And you've got that second perspective, the future vision. You've got that thing that's pulling you. It's clear and compelling clear so you can build strategic bets to it, compelling so that you'll actually lean forward, move to the offense and take the risks to move you from your comfy current reality to that better tomorrow. All right, that's the opportunity gap. Strategic bets require this disproportionate investment. They're not a part of your daily operating. They're not one of your current products or services. They're not one of the ways in which you function today. It's different. And if the bet pays off, it's going to move you from current reality closer to vision. But if it fails, you will have done the thinking because you know it's a bet. You will have done the thinking and you'll have the process in place to kill the bet or to adjust if you early enough realize that you were wrong. Mm. They're not strategic guarantees. And business will tell you as a result of 75% of strategies failing, there's no certainty. That's They're right. bets. That's so good. I heard you tell the story of Dan Cathy and him going to an automotive car show and, and looking at the car industry, looking ahead. And you think about what we've all lived through in 2020 and how Chick-fil-A shuts down their dining areas, but yet their drive-through and their mobile app. They were ahead of they were ahead of their time with that. Share a little bit about the Dan Cathy story because this was fascinating to me. Yeah, so you know, Dan, I, I've had the privilege of working with that organization since two thousand and seven. I wrote a book called "Becoming a Coaching Leader," and that piqued their interest. I had met them back in two thousand and one when I was doing a whole bunch of stuff with John Maxwell, and I came into their offices as a guest to talk about pastoral excellence, to talk about Mike Lynch and how do we help guys <laughs> like Mike Lynch to be better as leaders. It was a fun conversation and, and I was a guest. And uh, I got to meet Dan back 20 years ago. 
and Bubba and Truett and that whole crew. And we started working with them in 2007. So I would go to every annual meeting. Yep. They, they have something called seminar or next where they would four or 5,000 of their operators and you know, all the restaurant owners and their corporate staff would all come together for a few days. And, and I was always a guest and sometimes a speaker and it was great. But I remember Dan telling everybody that, uh, and I don't know if it was at, at one of those big events or if it was one of our smaller meetings, but he just shared, he had just gotten back from the car show. And if you know anything about the Kathy legacy, you know, Truett, the founder, he kind of had a thing for cars. And if you'd been to their corporate office, you walk into that lobby and you see everything from the Batmobile to the coolest Harley and every automobile in between. And that was just like the tip of the, excuse me, the tip of the iceberg for his uh, car fetish. Um, And uh, so I, I didn't know, you know, why did Dan Kathy go to the car show? And Dan shared, he went to the car show because he wanted to understand what the cars of the future were going to look like and how they would be designed because he knew that there was a shift taking place in their business and that more people wanted quicker serve than the original design when it was, uh, you know, the dwarf house. People weren't sitting in the restaurant as much. drive through was the way to go. So he wanted to know when we humans pull up, what are we going to be in? And what's that dining room called the car going to look like? And I thought that was brilliant. Absolutely. So there he was getting the perspective of the customer, which is perspective five. Yep. And it was informing some of the strategic bets they've made. And, and I happened to be around in, in those meetings when they were trying to figure out how to get almost all their drive-throughs to locations that wouldn't cause these massive traffic jams and to deal with city ordinances and to go from one lane to two lane. And to go from taking the order at a window to having people standing outside taking orders 20 cars deep and the volume and how they serve us, radical change. Yeah, yeah. That bet that, paid off. That sure did pay off. And that was a bet. And I'd never heard that before. But mm. it makes complete sense. And knowing the Kathy family, I grew up on the south side of Atlanta down near the Chick-fil-A headquarters. So a lot of the people I grew up with, parents worked there. And, and just the way they have stayed a little bit ahead of the curve is amazing. The one more, the one more perspective I want to push in on you with, because I thought it was so good was on team and the perspective of team. And you say, if people would coach their teams, I've heard you say this, if people would coach their teams, you could put me out of business. If they would one-on-one with the people that they work with, that's a powerful statement. And I think it makes sense to everybody, but not as many people do it. What happens when a leader begins to lead their team face-to-face? Everything good. Mm. And in today's time, face-to-face can be how you and I are together on a Zoom meeting. That's right. That's so, right. Uh, so, so fun factoid, I started my business, my one-on-one coaching business in 1996, so 25 years ago. There was no such thing as video calls. I wanted it. My wife, Sherry, and I were talking about this this morning. I went to Polycom with Patrick Lencioni. Patrick and I, I coached Patrick years ago. We became very good friends, business partners in different endeavors. I love the man. Um, But Patrick and I are sitting in this meeting in New York at Polycom's headquarters, uh, attending the World Business Forum. He was speaking at it. I was doing executive uh, coaching breakouts. And uh, we're in Polycom in their headquarters. And Polycom was one of the early, early businesses to start this technology where you can be in Georgia and I can be in Portland, Oregon, and we can be looking at each other, having a meeting. And I'm sitting in that room 20 years ago, and I'm sitting around a semicircle table. Sherry, my wife, just this morning, we're talking about this, around the semicircular table, and the conference room wall was big semicircle. And on this meeting, people are sitting at the table but they're in Sydney, Australia and Beijing, China and, you know, the UK, and we're all sitting at the table together. And I went, Oh, we need to figure out how to do that. Like we have to figure out how to do that. Mm. So I always saw that for the future. But back when I started the company in 96, we did all of our one-on-one with our clients over the phone. I wrote my book, becoming a coaching leader, 2004, five, six came out in 07 and that's where I first said, people read my book, do what I, what I tell you to do. Building champions, my coaching company will be put down. You'll, you'll end us. 
absolutely end us. It was how I built my mortgage banking career, one-on-one. Transformation takes place when you really understand your teammates, when you really understand them and when you have enough trust with them and they truly believe that you are an advocate of theirs and you want them to win, even if it means they're not on your team. That's good. When you're so convicted by helping people to be the best they can be and you're crystal clear on your vision, your strategic bets and how to win in current reality, you align your people to win. Then you coach them to be the person they can become so they can flourish in their role and then graduate to the next level, whether that's in your organization or on the outside. If you make that one of your high payoff activities and you become really skilled at question asking Mm -hmm. and listening challenging, using tools and frameworks to get to know them, where they have strength and where they have opportunity. And you create a process for it and you do it with intentionality and curiosity and conviction and humility. You'll bring out the best in people. You'll be an incredibly effective leader and you'll develop a team that'll just kick butt and take names over and over and over again. And, you know, people may not know your name. They all will, but they will be the ones that rise and perform. And if you do that over and over for a long enough period of time, yeah, you're gonna have a pretty good run. You know, it's a good, it's a good way to, to, to spend your days. It is a great way to spend your days. And it's biblical. And it's something that Jesus mastered the coaching piece. And as I was listening to you talk about it, all I could think of was the intentionality that he did pouring into those 12. 11 of them made it, one of them we know didn't, but 11 of them changed the world because of that time that he put in with them. And I, so I, I cannot wait for the leaders that I know that I work with to pick up this book. If they haven't gotten the seven perspectives, we're going to have links in our show notes and all the, all the ways for people to order the book. But I got a question for you. Which one of these do you struggle with the most? Because I think everybody's got the the one that you're like, I'm pretty good at that one, comes pretty natural by my personality. But this one is probably the one I struggle with the most. Is there one of them that stands out for you that's more of a struggle? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In times past, I've been bit by the perspective of the customer. Mm. Uh, So I have been more excited about my ideas and my new shiny strategies and didn't ask the customer if they really wanted them. Mm. And then they they didn't buy them. (laughs) That cost a lot of money. (laughs) And it cost me influence with my team. Today, and and that's a a good point. I haven't thought about it. I struggle with different ones at different times all the time. I've never had a mastered. Like I've never had a mastered. I'm always working on one. And right now I would say the one that that, um, I have the greatest vulnerability in is perspective three, strategic bets. And it's because perspective one, current reality has shifted so much. And I don't yet quite have my total bearings with current reality. I don't quite have them there yet because perspective five, the perspective of the customer, they quite they don't quite know what's happening. No. So it's a little opaque. It's a little cloudy. And what that does is that imp- it, that negatively impacts my confidence to place big bets. So something that you should know for years, building champions has had strategic bets. Most of them take a year, two or three to execute on They're bigger. Um, They cost a lot of money and they take a lot of time and a lot of energy. And sometimes you question, gosh, would we be just further if we focused on our core business and, and didn't chase these new things that we believe will move us closer to vision. Maybe they don't. Mm. Well, when, when 2019, I'm sorry, 2020 hit September of 2020, my team was here. We're having an outdoor meeting at my property and we were doing our planning for 2021 September. We're doing our planning for 2021 March of 2020. Everything changed. I woke up in Germany at two in the morning, but phone calls, get home now, the the borders are being closed. Six in the morning, I'm on a plane. Everything changed. Changed our whole game plan. Pivoted, created new programs around competencies we had. Used technology to our advantage. I've got coaches spread throughout the country. No brainer, this is easy for us. Started giving away content in a different way and just businesses and organizations said thank you and we had a great year. 
But in that meeting in September, we had bit, we had succeeded in executing two of the three big bets. We had them executed on. They were no longer bets. They moved to normal products or services. They're done. They're not bets anymore. Now this is who we are. We own them. They've got their line item. They're part of our function, part of our process. We've got them resourced. We're there. Now we just manage them. So we're sitting in September and team's asking, you know, what are you seeing bet wise? And I'm asking them. And I said, no bets, no bets, 2021, no bets. What we're going to do in 2021 is we're going to make sure we understand current reality and we're going to leverage the heck out of the bets that we just executed on. And let's let those things run. Hmm. Let's maximize the bets that we placed a few years ago and that are now standard. Let's maximize them because if we do, more people will be served in these unique ways and we'll actually grow by managing the business. Now is not a time to place bets. That's building champions, Yep. right? That's me now. Now, the truth of the matter is I'm going to a half day meeting this afternoon, right after I'm done with you. And I might see something or we might see something to where we're thinking, you know, customers are going to need this and we'll place a bet. So I asked the team, do we have permission to create a bet somewhere in 21, should we see it? Keep our eyes and ears open. Let's look. But don't feel the need to place one. So my greatest area of struggle right now is bets just because I'm not as confident in 21, 22 uh, as maybe I have been in years past because I got upended just like did you and everybody else, especially you and what you do. Oh, my gosh, brother. Um, whew. I look at the church and I think, oh my gosh, leadership in the church now. Wow. Mm. Hard filled with opportunity. That's right. That's my answer. That's good. That's good. Final two questions. Number one, who is a leader who makes you better? Everybody's got that person that you go. It may be their writings. It may be your one-on-ones with them. Who is somebody that every time you are with them, they help you with your vision and they help you, they help challenge you in the area of how I'm going to influence outsiders, which is one of your perspectives in the book. Who's, who's somebody that always makes you better and why do they make you better? You would need to give me about a, an hour to write my list. Wow. I am fortunate. Amen. So you look at the clients I serve. Yeah. The clients I serve, the chairman of Daimler global, uh, he used to be the the chair uh, the CEO of Daimler Trucks North America, Martin Dom. Every time I'm with Martin, he's my client, mm. but he makes me better. It's one of the greatest gifts. It connects back to your know, earlier question of what makes for great leaders. Doing what I do is I realize all leaders are humans and they have insecurities and frailties and they need help. And that's why they go to seventh perspective, the outsider. Yep. They want a thinking partner because it's lonely and they know they don't have it all together. But I think of Martin, I think of Tim, I, I think of so many clients. But the first answer, you know, Patrick, Henry, all these guys, they, I love being with them. It's iron sharpening iron. Yep. They make me better. Um, but the first response was, well, that's my board of advisors. Hmm. My board of advisors, almost every time I'm with each of them, they all, they're all on my website. They're my CEO mentors. So building champions as executive coaches and CEO mentors, the CEO mentors have all been presidents, CEOs, and founders of businesses. And now all they do is mentor other CEOs and they're my advisory board. So they're on my team, but one of them's my chairman and that rotates. One of them coaches me, that mentors me, that rotates, but they're all my advisors. And every time I'm with them, for the most part, I'll come out of those conversations better off than when I came in. That's so good. That is so good. Fortunate. Blessed, buddy. Fortunate, I'm telling you. You really are. You know, I know. You look at your life and you look at where you came from. You look at where you're headed. You look at where you are now. And God has put you where He's put you for a reason bigger than you. And God's given you those talents and abilities and the giftedness and the the clients, all, all those things. He's given you all those things. What do you think the Lord wants most from Daniel? At the end of it all, when, when all is said and done, 
you know, it, Scripture says David lived his purpose in his generation, and then he was done. What do you think was the purpose that God created Daniel for? What would you say? Hmm. Well, the, the two words that come to me are love and exhortation. Mm. Love and exhortation. Um, I don't know if, if most of my clients really value my intellectual horsepower because I don't know how much of that I really have. Man, I was a pot smoking, beer drinking punk for most of my young years. I damaged my brain. So, you know, throw the lack of education on there. I do love reading and I do love listening to podcasts and learning. I love learning. I wish I did when I was younger. I don't know if my clients really value my thinking. I think what they receive is I actually love them so much that I'll press in into areas nobody else will. Because I'm not married to them. I'm not on their team. I'm the outsider. So, you know, I don't start off loving all of my clients. And maybe I've loved some clients more than others uh, over the years. But I really do. I care about them. And I want them to win. Not just as, as business leaders, but I want them to win. As husbands or wives or partners or parents and as kids and siblings and community members. And I want them to, to be who they were created to be, regardless of their faith. I mean, some of my most favorite, beautiful clients that I love, huge, radical atheists, Jewish folks, Muslims, Hindis, doesn't matter. Love them. I know who God created them to be. And he's just called me to love them and to be me. And then when given the opportunity with all humility, make a defense for the hope that is in me. And I do that all day long. And then I exhort because I actually be, believe he's got something better for most of us, right? We haven't arrived. He's got something better for all of us. So how can I be used in that? I have a prayer every morning, Mike, and I think that probably will best answer your question and a good place for us to put a bow on the conversation if you're so inclined. Every morning I go face down the same way. And I have a three-part prayer. And the middle part, first part is all gratitude and acknowledging who he is. God's on the throne of my life. I'm not. He's the creator. I'm the created. You know, he's the, he's the maker. I'm the made. Not confuse this thing. He's the king. I'm not. He's the alpha and the omega. I'm not. I just have to every morning start my day off going, okay, dude, just understand. You're not him. Got to get there. Face down. Second part is the part I want to share with you. Lord, help me to be who you want me to be so that I can do what you want me to do. Help me to see people like you see them. Help me to love them like you love them. And may I serve them in ways that bring you fame and you glory. May I strive all day long to please an audience of one. Use me today to flip the switches up on the hearts of everybody I come into contact with all pointing to you. That's part two, every day. Part three, intercession for everybody and everything and favor and all that good stuff. But what I've seen is he is a God that loves to answer that prayer. He just loves to. All day, every day. And I sit along at the end of the day, I go to bed going, he did it again. Crazy. Wow. Miracle worker. You know, I remember getting off my call with Daniel that day and it was almost like I couldn't take in all the information that he shared. It was so good. I didn't want to get off because I just kept learning and going, man, I see how that applies. That is so good. And, you know, Daniel's just one of those people that when you spend time with them, you can tell they just make you better. And you know why guys go to him as a resource and a coach because he just makes them better. Thank you so much, Daniel, for making all of us better. And I hope you'll go out and get your copy of The Seven Perspectives 
of effective leaders because it is so, so good. Links are in our show notes and make sure and let Daniel know how much you enjoyed uh, his time with us by picking up his book. Well, we will wrap up 2021 with an episode that I have talked about probably as much as any that I ever talk about. And it was my conversation with Dr. Mark Rutland. Mark Rutland has been around the the arena of spiritual leadership and Christian leadership for years. Heard about him, never met him, but our conversation will be one that I will repeat, recount, and go over for years and years to come. And I promise you, you don't want to miss. It's going to come out on the 27th. It's a great time during the holidays to listen into it because it is just absolute gold. So thanks again for joining me today. If you get a chance, go leave a rating or a review. It does help other people find them, find their way to us and help us climb up those charts. Thanks again for being on today. And I pray you'll go be the leader that you were created to be in the space and place God has put you. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.